I'm Shelley Schlender for MeAndMyDiabetes.com. U.S. nutrition policies today are based on the idea that a calorie is a calorie, and what counts is to limit how many calories you eat or to burn off any excess calories with exercise. Late in June 2012, the Journal of the American Medical Association raised a challenge to that idea by publishing a Harvard study involving three different diets and how each diet affects the likelihood of gaining weight. The diets being studied were a low-fat diet, a low-carbohydrate diet, and the so-called Mediterranean diet. The Harvard study got large amounts of media attention, and David Ludwig, one of the study's leaders, told many media outlets that while the low-carb diet had the most improvement and many health markers overall, the fact that it raised cortisol levels and didn't lower C-reactive protein as much as the Mediterranean diet means the Mediterranean diet is the best one. Now, the Harvard School of Nutrition has been a longtime advocate of Mediterranean diets. So to check out their conclusion, up next, we talk with an advocate for a low-carb, high-fat diet, Dr. Ron Rosedale. Here's the first question for Ron Rosedale. Ron Rosedale, do you believe current dietary policy about the idea that a calorie in is a calorie out, that what we need to focus on is how many calories we take in and then exercise enough that we don't end up with excess calories. Well, I guess that's been the dogma for decades. And I suppose if it had been correct, you wouldn't see not only the maintenance, but the ever-increasing incidence of obesity and diabetes that's occurring worldwide as that dogma has been, that supposed dogma uh, has been followed. What I think the literature shows and has shown for at least a couple of decades, but the scientific evidence for this is just being ignored continually, that the story is a bit more complex than that, and that uh, whether we burn fat or not, which is what will determine whether we're obese or not, and whether we, uh, in most cases, uh, contract diabetes or not, is controlled by very specific hormones that regulate metabolism, the main ones being insulin and, even more importantly, leptin. And it's those hormones, in turn, are controlled by what we eat. And it isn't just the levels of a hormone that are relevant, but much more relevant, in fact, the only relevance, is their activity. And the activity is determined not just by the level of the hormone, but more importantly by the cell's ability to listen to that hormone. Uh, an example is the well-known phenomenon of insulin resistance, which occurs in the vast majority of cases of uh, diabetes and essentially is a synchronon of so-called type 2 diabetes, which is better called insulin-resistant diabetes, where the person has plenty of insulin, but the cells aren't able to listen to it, and therefore they behave as if the insulin level is too low, and then ultimately blood sugar goes up, but the consequences are are much deeper than that. So the level is, the, the, the disease is not from uh, in, in a too little insulin, it's not from too weak a signal, it's from an inability to listen to that signal. And the inability to listen to that signal is uh, most likely caused from a, an over 
overactivity of that communication over time. It's too much, and so the cells tune out. Exactly. It's kind of like being overexposed to noise. You lose your hearing faster, or sitting in a smelly room for a long time, pretty soon you can't smell it. Uh, the stimulus becomes too much, as you mentioned, and, and the, the mediators, the chemical mediators of that signaling basically become depleted, and uh, the pathway becomes resistant to the signal. And that resistance is paramount to virtually all of the chronic diseases of aging and perhaps even aging itself. The same thing happens with leptin, where obese people have plenty of leptin that normally signals that you have too much fat and you better burn it off and you curtail uh, your hunger so you don't eat as much. But the actual event that occurs with leptin resistance is the opposite, where Although leptin should be telling the brain that you have too much fat, the brain is hearing that you have too little and that you won't be able to survive a famine and therefore you should be hungry and you should store more fat and you should not burn the fat that you've got. That's really the ultimate basis of almost all cases of obesity around the world. And it goes even beyond that because then there's inflammatory markers and many people believe that the same processes control the actual rate of aging. Uh, and these are all tied into a genetic pathway that we know controls the rate of aging in, in many species of laboratory animals, as indicated by calorie restriction studies. So it goes on and on and on. So the, the simple adage that a calorie in is a calorie out is really, really archaic news that really needs to be thrown out. Well, you know, there's this new study that came out of Harvard where the headlines about it today are that a calorie is not a calorie. Yeah. There's a different thing that's governing whether or not what we eat is helping us lose weight or whether what we eat is helping us maintain our weight, which may be even a bigger deal because there are a lot of ways that people can lose weight. And in the United States and in modern countries, it seems the biggest problem is keeping that weight off. And this study compared three different diets. It compared a low-carbohydrate diet, it compared a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet, and then it compared kind of a Mediterranean diet where supposedly there wasn't anything that caused sugars to spike. There were a lot of complex carbohydrates. There was a moderately fair amount of fat. And so they compared these diets, and they got different results. What do you think of the idea of doing that kind of study? Well, uh, first I want to say that what really surprised me about the study is that it's news. You know, it's been shown for, really, as I say, a couple of decades by myself and many others that a calorie is not a calorie. So they're certainly far from the first people that have shown anything like this. Uh, as far as their, their study is concerned, uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but as in so many medical and nutritional studies, it really is designed to try and support a preconceived conclusion. So they wanted to try and support a dietary protocol that they've been using for many years, which is a so-called Mediterranean diet. Let's give a bit more detail about this study. This study was published today in the American Medical Association Journal. This is June 27, 2012. The title of the study is Effects of Dietary Composition on Energy Expenditure During Weight Loss and Maintenance. 
the lead author or one of the lead authors is David Ludwig. Uh, I think that the lead author is Kara Ebeling, who I hope to speak with. And as you say, this is a group that has been strong advocates for the idea of the Mediterranean diet over others. But what is it that you're saying, though, that they stack the deck in favor of the Mediterranean diet? Well, they tried to stack the deck, but, but the results actually didn't support their conclusions. And it, it kind of surprised me that they concluded what they concluded, that the Mediterranean diet was the best diet. What they really showed, and what they even said uh, was shown, was that the very low-carbohydrate diet actually had the best results as far as metabolic markers with what they said were two exceptions. And one of the major exceptions that they mentioned, which they said was an adverse result, was that cortisol levels were increased with the very low-carbohydrate diet. And that's probably true. It's true that cortisol levels were increased or that that was an adverse effect? It's true that cortisol levels were probably increased and would probably increase with a properly administered, very low-carbohydrate diet. The, uh, what was wrong with the conclusion is that it's an adverse effect. It's actually a very beneficial effect. And what you will see, you will see with calorie-restricted studies in animals that has been shown to extend lifespan for the last 80 years, and what's seen in centenarians, people who live to be over 100. In all of these groups, one of the common findings is that cortisol levels increase. And what, what the study was saying is that oh, this is a bad thing. It shows that there must be increased inflammation. But the, one of the reasons that cortisol levels increased, as theorized, is to suppress inflammation. Cortisol itself is a very powerful anti-inflammatory. Are you saying then that depending on the composition of a diet, some of these hormones have different effects. That in a diet that's high in carbohydrates and more than enough calories, extensive time with high cortisol might be more of a problem than it is with a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet where people are not eating too many calories, as examples. If you just measure hormone levels, and this is kind of what I was getting at at the beginning of the conversation, it doesn't give you the full story. Uh, the fact, for instance, uh, going back to diabetes and insulin, where insulin is elevated, and yet the signal is very low, causing higher blood sugars, and the actual frank uh, definition of diabetes uh, because of a low signal. So the fact that cortisone levels go up does not necessarily mean that even the signal is up. And you have to look at why it's going up. Is it going up because it has to go up because there is an overabundance of inflammation or is it going up as one of the protective mechanisms to reduce inflammation long-term as seen in calorie-restricted long-lived animals and centenarians? And it's even theorized that one of the, the reasons calorie restriction works to extend lifespan and greatly improve health is by reducing inflammation. And the other markers that I mean, one of the major markers that were shown in this study to go down even further with a very low carbohydrate diet was leptin. And that's extremely significant because we know that leptin controls many inflammatory markers. And one of the, again, there's been numerous papers now that have shown 
or they theorize that one of the reasons behind the health benefits and longevity behind caloric restriction is a lowering of leptin, which controls the, the neuroendocrine axis via the hypothalamus in the brain, which then controls every other hormone in the body, but also controls inflammation, and by going down, greatly suppresses many different markers of inflammation. And as, as part of a long-term maintenance to improve lifespan, it, uh, it, it reduces inflammation and also by reducing blood sugar, which leptin, lowering leptin can do irrespective of insulin, improving insulin sensitivity and leptin sensitivity also greatly reduces the cause of inflammation and not just the mediators of it, because we know that glucose itself is highly inflammatory, as is insulin and as is leptin. So what the study really showed is that if you go much further than uh, their Mediterranean diet and you reduce carbs by not just uh, slowly absorbable carbs, but just reduce them altogether, because even the slowly re uh, absorbable carbohydrates will cause a spike in carbohydrate, will cause a spike in, in, in blood sugar, just not as severe as, as some other carbohydrates. Am I correct in saying that you think that just looking at one hormone without looking at the whole symphony doesn't give you the entire picture? You seem to be saying that, for instance, in somebody who was a diabetic, who had insulin resistance, who was obese and who had high blood pressure, if that person's cortisol levels were high, that might not be the same as when someone who is thin and fit and caloric restricted or um, has the markers of the centenarians, the people who live to be in their hundreds and are healthy, or the people who are uh, on a restricted calorie diet, that's a different kind of of high cortisol for them than it is for somebody who, say, is a type 2 diabetic or somebody who's a post-traumatic stress victim. That's absolutely true, uh, beyond the obvious. So the reasons behind an elevation in a hormone are extremely important, but also what is mediating the, the elevation and when. So for instance, in this study, which they're trying to hang their hat on on cortisol is a reason that their Mediterranean diet might still be better than a very low-carbohydrate diet, even though the very low-carbohydrate diet showed uh, an improvement in all other metabolic markers. Uh, but what's relevant on cortisol, we know that it is normally secreted in a diurnal pattern, meaning that typically if you're healthy, it ought to be released in high quantities in the morning and low quantities at night. And this would have had to have been measured, and it Many, many studies now have shown that disruptions in that diurnal secretion of cortisol is what can cause many of the problems in cortisone. Not the, the absolute amount, but when it's released. And that's extremely important. And so what's found in centenarians, for instance, is that the diurnal variation in cortisol is maintained. And so even though the cortisol levels are increased in centenarians, the good part is that it's increased appropriately. So it goes up in the morning and down at night. And that diurnal variation in many disease states uh, becomes decreased. You're saying that a bigger clue of whether or not cortisol is healthy or not isn't the amount of cortisol, but whether it is being released in an appropriate way from 
morning through night. Right. And in this study, they didn't measure that. They measured urinary 24-hour secretion, which doesn't, you can't. It, it just measure the total amount of, of, of cortisol. Uh, they didn't measure cortisol binding protein, I don't believe. So it's not just the amount of cortisol, but when it's released uh, in any of the uh, fatty, especially steroid molecules, such as uh, HDL and LDL and testosterone and all the, all the steroids that are derived from cholesterol, which, by the way, is a precursor for all of the steroid hormones, including cortisol and testosterone and estrogen. Cholesterol is not that evil monster that the medical profession is making it out to be, but in fact uh, is a, is a life-giving uh, uh, molecule. But the, the metabolites from cholesterol are all kind of a steroid, waxy, fatty substance and have to be carried around the bloodstream. And they're carried by binding proteins to make them soluble in the watery environment of the blood. And so like LDL is uh, low-density lipoprotein and HDL is high-density lipoprotein, these shuttle cholesterol to and from tissues. You have the same type of molecules that shuttle cortisol and shuttle testosterone and, tuttle and shuttle estrogen as far as cortisol, they're called uh, cortisol-binding proteins. And the proportion that is bound to a protein is inactive. It's only the free fraction that, uh, that is active. And so if you just measure cortisol levels, you don't know the amount that's active and the amount that's inactive. And if you just measure 24-hour secretion, you don't know when it's secreted and when it's not secreted. In other words, it gives you almost no information. And so trying to hang your hat on the fact that cortisol levels were elevated and saying that therefore their diet, their Mediterranean diet, is better than a very low-carbohydrate diet is extremely misguided. Is there a way to measure the kind of cortisol that is in the active form? And did they measure that? Oh, yeah, there's definitely a way to measure it. And no, they didn't measure it. You can measure it directly in the blood. More appropriately, you can measure it in the saliva, which for in most cases is a is an easier way uh, to measure it because then you can easily collect it both in the morning and the evening so that you can at least get two measurements. And the, the salivary measurements of cortisol are free fractions. It's the amount of cortisol that actually got into the saliva that actually had activity. Uh, and then again, you have to go beyond that and go beyond the assumption that cortisol is bad. It's not. You need cortisol. Again, it's an anti-inflammatory. It's not a pro-inflammatory. It's an anti-inflammatory. Are you somebody who would give someone a cortisol shot if their hip or their knee was sore? No, I wouldn't. You don't want it in super physiologic doses, uh, typically. All right, so, so there's ways that you think that it's good and there's ways you think that it's bad, but when it appears in the blood or the saliva in higher amounts in the right pattern during the day and the night, that generally tends to be an indicator of health, not disease. Exactly, like any hormone. You know, insulin is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Leptin is not bad. It's, it's, it keeps you alive. Uh, you have to get the signals. Uh, you have to get the signals message across to the cells. And that's really what you want. You want the cells to listen appropriately at the appropriate time and at the appropriate location. And that's what is necessary for any type of health. You know, I wondered also with cortisol that in the case of somebody on a very low carbohydrate diet who's eating a lot of fat, 
which some of the people, a third of the people in this Harvard study were doing, then the body has to send out signals for the body to make its own sugar now and then just to keep the levels regulated. Um, and one way to do that is for the body to send out a cortisol signal is my guess. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. One of the uh, purposes of cortisol is as a glucoregulatory hormone. And if sugar levels go low, then cortisol is one of the hormones that will be secreted so that you can raise glucose to a level that the body deems appropriate. The real key is to get that level as low as possible. But when the body gets to do it with something like cortisol, it gets to choose what that level will be. It gets to choose. And over time, and this is another key, the level becomes lower. And they didn't allow enough time for this. Oh, you mean that the level of cortisol over time is likely to go down further if somebody gets even more adapted to a low-carbohydrate, higher-fat diet. Yeah, they only carried out the, the, uh, in, the experimental diets for four weeks. And that's just about enough time to get a person uh, adapted and not longer. And so they, they were measuring cortisol uh, at a time when it really was not optimal to really uh, adapt to a very low-carbohydrate diet. You need to partake in that uh, metabolic uh, change much longer, and the set point then for glucose goes down, and therefore the need for gluconeogenesis goes down. But more importantly, there's an, a metabolic adaptation that will increase the ability to manufacture glucose from other uh, metabolic precursors such as lactate and glycerol in the body, such that the need for uh, the, the major gluconeogenic pathways is greatly reduced, but that takes quite a few more weeks than what they carried the study out. You know, it makes it sound as though possibly asking the authors whether the cortisol levels in people when they were on the low-carb, high-fat diet went down more at the end of their studying them than at the beginning of them might be useful to know. It would be, and I, you know, I don't recall, I didn't really see how many times they actually measured it. I don't know if it was just a before and after or if there were any intervening uh, measurements. But again, you don't know whether necessarily it's a good or a bad thing. As I mentioned, uh, cortisol is increased in all of the parameters that we know that increase health and lifespan calorie restriction and, and in centenarians. And I think one can't ignore that there might be some sort of benefit then to increase cortisol. And my guess is that that would definitely be true, and my guess is that it is likely due to its anti-inflammatory effect. Well, Ron Rosedale, you're suggesting that the Harvard, the Boston Hospital study is something where the deck was stacked in favor of the Mediterranean diet I think it's fair to say that you're someone who likes to stack the cards in favor of a high-fat, low-carb diet. Well, that's because I've found that to be by far a better diet. I've used the Mediterranean diet in the past and didn't get anywhere close to the results one can get if you just get rid of sugar. There's no biological need to eat sugar, and we know all sorts of adverse consequences, secondary to glycation, advanced glycated end products, 
We know that it increases inflammation and aging. It increases spikes in insulin and leptin, which promote insulin and leptin resistance. Uh, and it reduces, and it, if you increase glucose levels, whether it be by fast-acting glucose or whether it be by longer-acting glucose, the so-called resistant starches that they maintain as beneficial in a, on, a, uh, on their Mediterranean diet, you accelerate aging. And in fact, we know through Cynthia Kenyon's study and others, and what I've shown in, in studies, is that if you keep glucose levels very low, and only if you keep glucose levels, the intake very low, only if you follow a very low carbohydrate, not a high protein diet, and a high beneficial fat diet, you can mimic the effects of calorie restriction as far as the laboratory parameters. And that can only be a good thing. I also want to mention one thing on this study that is quite notable, that they put people on a high-protein diet. Hold on a second, because the characterization of this diet was that it was an Atkins-style diet that was high in fat and low in carbs, but are you saying that that was actually a high-protein diet? It was. Well, they were putting people on an average of 150 grams of protein a day. That's a high-protein. That's Three to, it's two to three times the protein that I recommend for people. And elevated protein has a lot of adverse consequences as far as many different parameters, including inflammation, which could be one of the reasons that they noted uh, a non-significant, I should mention, uh, increase in CRP, which is their second so-called adverse effect that they encountered. C-reactive protein, again, is a, is a so-called marker of inflammation, but it's really a marker of the immune system uh, increasing. It's, uh, it's like one of the first responders to increase the phagocytic activity, the, abit- the ability of white blood cells to engulf intruders and clean up debris. So once again, it's certainly possible that short-term CRP could go up on a very low-carbohydrate diet, secondary to the, uh, the anti-aging effect, the actually you know, slowing the aging. We know one of the uh, events that takes place in calorie restriction and in other uh, genetic modalities that greatly increase health and lifespan in laboratory animals is that you increase something called autophagy, which is the ability of the body to basically clean up garbage. And that requires uh, a more active immune system. But it's possible in, the, in a short term that you can increase immune activity to increase autophagy so you can kind of get rid of some of the, the garbage that, uh, that is kind of poisonous to the body. But I, I, I should mention that long term, what I've seen in people on a very low carbohydrate diet and what's seen in calorie restriction is a reduced CRP uh, longer term. I think after the initial uh, several week adaptation, I think you'll see CRP come down. But it also should be noted that what their, what their data showed and many other data showed, including myself, that what will lower leptin the most is a very low carbohydrate diet. And when you lower leptin, you greatly reduce many different markers of inflammation, uh, TNF-alpha, interleukins, 
many markers of leptin itself is an inflammatory chemical. Uh, it's a cytokine. So other markers, had they been measured, they would have found secondary to lowering leptin would have been greatly reduced, other markers of inflammation. All right. So one concern that you have here is these are markers where in the short term, they can go up for beneficial reasons. And after a person is adapted to a high-fat, low-carb diet, they both tend to go down for, again, benign reasons, helpful reasons. And so another question to ask the researchers would be, did the C-reactive protein levels for the people on the high-fat, low-carb diet tend to start out higher and end up lower after four weeks? Well, two things. Number one, uh, what they're calling two inflammatory markers, cortisol is not an inflammatory marker. It's an anti-inflammatory marker. They are misinterpreting cortisol. You believe that cortisol depends on a lot of other things besides just that number alone. Yeah, and again, cortisol we know, and it's being used therapeutically as an anti-inflammatory. It's not pro-inflammatory as they're making it out to be like an adverse event. It's not an adverse event. I think they were trying to find some reason to downplay the beneficial laboratory results that were obtained with the very low-carbohydrate diet, even though it used much more protein than I would have recommended. Uh, I think it used a diet that I recommend, which would have been a much more uh, moderated protein intake uh, and probably a higher, a higher beneficial fat intake and a very low carbohydrate intake like they uh, administered, you would get even uh, far greater results. I think I've, I've written much about it, and I think you can find on the Internet many adverse consequences of high protein. And when they mentioned a, an, an Atkins-type diet, that is true. What An Atkins-type diet is basically very low carbohydrate, and anything else goes. I maintain very strongly that that is not so. It's not anything else goes. And there's a huge difference between a very low-carbohydrate, high-protein diet and a very low-carbohydrate, low-to-moderate-protein diet. There's huge differences in longevity and other metabolic parameters on different metabolic pathways. Yes, you know, the current experts on the Atkins diet who have rewritten the Atkins book are Eric Westman, Jeff Volek, and Steve Finney. And in their current writings about it, and in conversations with them, they would agree with you that you don't want to have high protein as part of a low-carb diet. Yeah, they agree with me because I taught them that. <laughs> I, I, uh, they were actually very pro-protein uh, up until a meeting where I spoke uh, at the American College of Bariatric Physicians quite a few years ago that uh, kind of pitted me against everybody else who then was recommending a high-protein intake and I showed him quite a bit of literature that high protein was, was not beneficial. And I'm quite happy to hear that they've changed their tune since then. Now, if all you guys are saying that high protein should not be part of a low-carb diet, then why did the Boston Harvard team use a high protein diet as their high-fat, low-carb diet? Well, that's a great question. Uh, as again, I think there are so many studies in health and medicine where the, uh, the experiment is, is not 
particularly performed to find some ultimate truth, but is performed as a marketing effort. And so I think they were trying to bolster their recommendation for a higher carbohydrate Mediterranean type diet uh, by the setup of the experiment to begin with, but also then in their conclusion, the, the data that, uh, that was forthcoming from their study didn't support their conclusions. And yet they tried to make it seem and, and they popularized through their PR department and all the, uh, the popular media that the Medi their Mediterranean diet was far healthier than a very low carbohydrate diet. That is not what their data showed at all. Again, on the cortisol levels, the high cortisol is almost synonymous with longevity and health in centenarians and calorie-restricted animals, which are two of the major uh, modalities of, of aging studies. And the, uh, the other so-called adverse effect that they're reporting was C-reactive protein. And, I, and they have to uh, emphasize, and I have to emphasize, that the difference in C-reactive protein between the very low carbohydrate diet, which was a high protein diet, and their Mediterranean diet was not significant. It, it did not uh, approach statistical significance, and yet they mentioned it anyway. You know, and what, what else? I was listening to National Public Radio today, and the short report that they had said that the inflammatory markers were higher on the low carb, high fat diet. And so that's why the Mediterranean diet wins. And so it wasn't mentioned in the national report in that group. But I haven't seen that mentioned in the way that you're mentioning it now. But you have a concern that the data was uh, trumpeted in some ways where it didn't deserve to be. It was spun and twisted in a way to make the their type of Mediterranean diet uh, look beneficial compared to the very low carbohydrate diet, which in fact the, the, their own data showed actually had considerably significantly better uh, metabolic results. Now, do you think that if I talked with somebody who is an expert and a fan of high carb, low fat diets, say Dean Ornish, for instance, do you think that he would have some gripes about how they did the study too? It very well could be. Uh, I don't know. I don't know either, but I'm curious whether someone who has an expertise there could look at this and say whether or not they felt like the low-fat, high-carb diets were fairly represented. And I even find myself wondering, Ron Rosedale, whether or not uh, the Harvard group could have invited an expert like you or Steve Finney or Eric Westman to check how they were doing the high-fat, low-carb protocol to see if it was okay. It's, it's puzzling to me why, why, why your views are so different from the kind of diet that they chose. That's a great question. I think I've you know, tried to maybe not be so politically correct in saying why that would be. Uh, I think one finds all too often a lack of uh, a true wonderment about scientific truth and instead, studies are done more for marketing efforts than true science. Well, let's, let's us do some wondering then. Great. 
there were some other aspects of the hypotheses, you know, the premises and the beliefs going into this study that were interesting. And I, I wondered what you thought of those, that this study began by saying that lots of people can lose weight, but very few people can maintain that weight loss. And one reason is because it's hard to keep going when you have an unusual diet that's supposed to be for your health and everyone around you is eating differently. But then the other side of the premise was that people's bodies change metabolically when they change how they eat and the ways that their bodies change metabolically and with hormone signaling fight against them being able to keep the weight off. Do you think that's true? Well, I think it is true short term, but we know now that there are, uh, there are metabolic pathways that are instrumental in dictating what our wants and desires are as far as uh, what we eat, what we burn, whether we burn fat or whether we burn sugar, and therefore whether we need to eat fat or sugar uh, to sustain our energy requirements. Do those metabolic pathways make a difference on whether we feel hungry or full or anxious or content with how we've been eating? Well, they dictate those things. They don't just make uh, an impact. Uh, they are those things. So we know, for instance, that leptin is what will is one of the major hormones. And there are, are multiple because multiple hormones that dictate hunger because of how important it is. Nature knows that the only way a person is not going to overeat is if they're not hungry. And we know now that one of the major defects in metabolism that causes people to overeat is because leptin is not being heard properly, i.e. leptin resistance. And again, I strongly believe uh, that leptin resistance is caused from spikes in leptin, secondary to what people have been eating for years, causing a downregulation in the ability of the brain, a hypothalamus in particular, to listen to what leptin is trying to say, such that if a person has too much leptin, where normally it would uh, reduce hunger and increase the ability to burn fat, the brain is hearing a different message. It's hearing too little leptin, even though there's a lot of it, and thinking that the person might be starving and therefore will increase their hunger and prevent the ability to burn fat properly. So there's a dysregulation in leptin signaling, which we know occurs in almost all overweight and obese people. And the way to correct it, I found, ooh, how long ago now, at least 15 years, I think I wrote one of the first books on, maybe the first book on, on leptin and its uh, clinical application to disease, was that you have to eat to maintain a low leptin. And the lower the leptin, the greater the signal. Just like we know that if a person eats appropriately, insulin levels will go down, their serum insulin will go down along with their blood sugar so that we know that insulin is being heard better and you can alleviate uh, the vast majority of cases of type 2 diabetes by eating a diet that is very low in carbohydrate, not high protein, just enough protein to meet your needs, which is normally between 50 and 70 grams a day, depending on your size and activity level. And that will keep both insulin and leptin down and improve their signal. So even though the levels are coming down, the power of the signal is increasing, and therefore hunger will go down, the person will eat less long-term, 
and they will burn more fat. And that's really what this study showed. They just don't want to admit it. Well, Ron Rosedale, one of the premises of this study has been that uh, it's hard to do that. And the study hints that it may not be as hard as they thought. But that idea that it's hard to maintain your weight once your leptin levels have been high and then they go down, uh, that comes from the 19... Uh, the early 2000s, maybe the 1990s, where Rudy Leibel and I think Mark Rosenbaum out of Columbia had studies of leptin where they believed that they showed very consistently that once somebody has been fat and overweight or obese, then if they get down to a lower weight, then that leptin signal is always ha going to haunt them and want them to have their weight go back up again. That's correct, unless you eat a diet that will consistently keep leptin low and you go through a transformation period of several weeks that increases leptin sensitivity. So I'm, I'm well aware of their study and they are very wrong in their conclusion, just like this paper was. You may believe that they're very wrong, but their conclusions are governing nutritional policy in the United States. Which is why we are seeing a record number of obese and diabetic people around the world. Well, maybe I should call them up and ask them some questions about whether in their studies they ever put someone on a truly high-fat, low-carbohydrate, adequate protein diet after they had lost weight to see if then they would maintain their weight. That would be great, and I think they will say they haven't, because if they did, they would have seen exactly what I had seen for the last 20 years, is that weight loss can easily be maintained, and that maintenance is almost parallel to leptin and insulin levels. You know, I, I did talk with uh, one of them many years ago, and I think I remember him saying that when people were losing weight, they weren't hungry. But once they had to be maintaining weight again, their hunger came back. That was interesting. Yeah, and they were maintaining them on a higher carbohydrate diet. So when they were losing weight, their test subjects, they were basically burning their own body fat so that they were on a high-fat diet. Yeah, well, they were burning their body fat and their muscle because they weren't really putting them on a proper diet. So they were putting them on a high-carbohydrate diet that maintained their, essentially, addiction to burning sugar as a primary fuel. And one of the things I've said many, many times, and really, I think, should dictate all health and nutrition policy is that a person's health and longevity is going to be determined by the proportion of fat versus sugar they burn over a lifetime. The more fat you burn, the healthier you'll be. The more sugar you have to burn, the more unhealthy you'll be. And, th and that's your choice in fuels. You, have, you can burn sugar, you can burn fat, or byproducts of fat metabolism called ketones. And if you burn fat and ketones, you're going to be healthy. And whether you burn fat or ketones is going to be dictated by hormones, such as leptin and insulin. And those hormones, in turn, are dictated by what you eat. So you have to eat to regulate the hormones that regulate whether you burn fat or sugar. And that, in turn, will dictate health. That's a good thing for people to remember. That's a helpful thing if they, if they want to try a high-fat, low-carb diet and reasons to stay with it. But if we get back to this study... There was another detail in here that I wondered about what you would think about it, because one premise of this study is that it's not a good thing when people lose weight and their metabolism goes down, because if their metabolism goes down, it doesn't take as many calories for them to maintain their body. And so one of the measures that this study used for whether or not people were 
having a diet that worked for them is whether or not their metabolism stayed up and revved up or not. I wondered what you thought about that. Well, I think that just really shows an ignorance of metabolism. I mean, I hate to put it that way, but that's true. Uh, again, in calorie-restricted animals and, centen and centenarians, uh, one of the few commonalities that is very powerful is that uh, free T3, the active thyroid, goes down, as does body temperature. In other words, the body goes into a more thrifty state so that uh, it can maintain itself longer and healthier. So the metabolism goes down. You know, metabolism going down because it's healthier. It's not metabolism going up or down, really, that is even relevant as far as health. It's the quality, quality of metabolism rather than the quantity of metabolism. So, for instance, on a person's car, you can increase so-called thermogenesis. You can increase the metabolism of your car as indicated by the, uh, the standing RPMs. In other words, you're at a stop sign and would you want high RPMs or low RPMs? You want lower RPMs that are nice and smooth. And so let's say you're at a stop sign and your car is running rough, you know, and, and it's stalling out on you. You can go to a shop and one thing they could do is increase the metabolism of your car by increasing the baseline RPMs. In other words, instead of 600, they might put it to 1,000 or 1,200 so that it's revving high. What you'll notice on your car then is that the temperature of the car, the temperature of the engine will be hotter. It's increasing thermogenesis. It's increasing its heat output. Does it also mean that it would take more gas to have it go the same amount of miles? It'll take more gas to go the same amount of miles, which burns it out, but it also gets far less mileage. And so the longevity of the engine will go way down. The mileage, which would dictate basically in how long that car is going to live, is going to go way down. The pickup of the car even will go down. So even though the metabolism, metabolism is up, the useful energy of that car goes down. And that's not what we want. You know, that's true. I, I don't buy a car because I want it to take more gas to get the same amount of miles. And I don't buy a car because it's going to burn out faster. No, most people wouldn't. And in fact, if there were a person was pulling into a gas station and they could get one of two fuels and on one gas tank it said that this gas will cause your car to run hotter as opposed and, and get less gas mileage as opposed to the other tank that will say this will cause your car to run cooler in other words lower metabolism and you'll get better mileage which you think people would get they would always get the one that gets better mileage and causes their car to run cooler because they know that's better well, we operate under the exact same laws of physics there's no difference. You know, science is science, and it permeates everything, including humans. And it just amazes me how people can go to a health food store and how uh, comments, as in this paper, talking about increasing metabolism as, it's, as if it's a good thing, and then have absolutely zero knowledge about the baseline science behind it. It's often said that it's a good thing about a diet if it keeps your metabolism revved up and it's a bad thing 
to have metabolism go down. And here you are saying that having some of these indicators of how hot your body is running go down actually may mean that your body's just running better. Exactly correct. I mean, there's so much misinformation and myth out there in, in health and nutrition and medicine in general that, uh, you know, and this is not new information. I've been saying the same thing for 20 years. And one of these days, hopefully the message will get through. And I'm just hoping I'm alive to see it. Here you are where you and Eric Westman and Steve Finney and Jeff Volek see the same way on protein now. And so that's, that's something that has evolved over time. And um, it was, I think it was the Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer who pointed out that the world really is sort of flat because it's only a tiny bit round, but that roundness is enough to make the whole world round. But it's taken time to take all of those different ideas and refine them into what our world looks like. Maybe the same way with nutrition. Well, certainly we hope so. Uh, the, the major problem these days, uh, which is quite different from Isaac Asimov's time, is that knowledge now can be disseminated very easily. And there's no excuse to not be up to date. All you have to do is go on the internet and, uh, and, and, and read. And the problem is that there is uh, less of a motive to actually learn science as a profit motive. And that's the major impediment to the advancement of science. And that's, it's really unfortunate. Well, I'm not making any money by talking with you, and I don't know that you're making any money by talking with me. So let's ask another question of wonderment, which is the one that had to do with, you said that having a metabolism be revved up just to make it hotter is not so good, but sometimes metabolism can go up for good reasons. And since you were talking about cars, I'm picturing the difference between a car that is running efficiently on the fuel that it has and getting lots of miles to the gallon and a car that doesn't use a lot of gallons of gas because it's too sluggish to run at all. So I, I would guess that that kind of slow metabolism in a car is not a good kind of healthy metabolism. So is there a kind of metabolism that can be measured in people where it indicates that their bodies are efficient but also that their bodies have access to energy and can use it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, certainly your metabolism is, is, is very low and probably at, near its lowest point when you die. Uh, so that obviously wouldn't be good. That would be kind of one extreme. But uh, what, what you want, basically, as I mentioned, is just the ability to burn fat. And that can be easily determined by many different laboratory parameters. You can measure insulin, you can measure leptin, you can measure uh, blood glucose, you can measure thyroid, especially free T3, uh, reverse T3, which actually should go up. That's another misconception that reverse T3 indicates a disease state. It does not. It's one of the ways that your body has of regulating thyroid activity. And there's many different metabolic markers that can be measured to indicate a healthy metabolism as opposed to a, a deranged metabolism that is unable to perform. So uh, the difference is, for instance, there's a lot of misconceptions about thyroid. And we know in calorie-restricted animals 
and in very low carbohydrate diets or in, in, in the vast majority of modalities that increase lifespan and health in laboratory animals, the active thyroid, free T3, goes down. And so many people use that as an excuse, really, or a reason that, again, very low carbohydrate diets are detrimental, saying that it causes hypothyroidism. And again, that's really misguided knowledge. That's not hypothyroid. And the, the TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone from the pituitary, does not go up. In other words, what it is, it's a purposeful downregulation of thyroid to allow the body to run in a healthier, a more beneficial state, not because it has to, but because it wants to. Whereas in hypothyroidism, what you'll see is the body trying to make more thyroid, but it can't. And so the TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone, is high while active thyroid is low. That's a big difference. The big difference if your body wants higher thyroid but can't do it, as opposed to the body purposefully lowering the thyroid because it's healthier to do so. Well, want versus can't. That's a pretty big difference. And so you're implying that when it comes to the metabolism of a person, if, if a person's body's running hot all the time, that's different from a body where when a body needs to get extra energy, it can. And I'm going back to the study. I'm curious whether you think that the higher metabolic rate of the people on the high-fat, low-carb diet was because their bodies were running better or because they had too much protein in there, which was increasing the metabolism? What do you think was going on there? Well, I think one of them definitely had to do with the, the protein content. We know that protein is very so-called thermogenic. It's unhealthy, uh, and the body will essentially be forced to burn excess protein in, in in this particular case, there's probably 100 grams of excess protein a day, which is a huge amount. That's number one. Number two is that uh, leptin went down considerably. Uh, it went down more in the very low-carbohydrate diet. Even, if, even with the high protein, it would have gone, gone down further, I believe, if it hadn't been a high-protein diet. But even with the high-protein, very low-carbohydrate diet, leptin went down the most. When it goes down over time, it improves the signaling and it improves leptin sensitivity, which will then allow your body to want to start burning off excess fat. And so it'll notice then that, whoa, we've got way too much fat to be healthy. In our ancestral times, carrying around the extra fat would be a death sentence because any animal that was chasing a group of people would go after the fattest one that couldn't make it up the tree, and also the fat person wouldn't be able to hunt and gather very well to even feed themselves. So being fat in our ancestral uh, history was very disadvantageous. The body doesn't want you to be fat. One of the major regulatory uh, methods that the body has to keep a person healthy and prevent uh, fatness is proper leptin signaling. And so by going on a, a very low carbohydrate diet that does lower leptin more than any of the other diets, uh, even in this study, you improve leptin sensitivity, so you actually improve the signaling more, so you'll end up burning more fat, which will, at least temporarily until you burn off the excess fat, you know, increase your metabolism if you want to look at it as such. Well, then are you glad that this study measured leptin? Yes, I'm glad it measured leptin. I'm glad it measured insulin and glucose and some of the other metabolic markers. It would have been quite a travesty had it not. 
So there are some things that you're glad that they did in this study, but there are some areas where you have questions about them, and I will see if I can ask some of these questions and, and share with you the answers when I get them. That uh, would be great. As I say, it's not, it wasn't a bad study per se. I think that the conclusions that were drawn uh, were a bit misguided, and I think what they were trying to do is essentially reach for straws to try and support a diet that they've been supporting now for years. Well, and you have some questions. You have some wishes that they had done a little bit different choices in the study. And, for instance, how they measured cortisol is a big one. And the timing of when they measured C-reactive protein also so that they could see whether there were changes over time. And you sure wish that they hadn't used so much protein for the high-fat, low-carb branch of the study. That would have been, I think, far superior. And also, I mean, for instance, on the CRP, had they just been looking at it from an objective standpoint and not trying to support one diet over another, all they would have said is that there was no statistically significant difference. If you're going to use statistical significance the way is typically done in these studies, you can't use it for certain parameters and not for others. Say, if you ever do a study of a high-fat, low-carb, adequate protein diet, you think that you ought to invite these Harvard researchers that like the Mediterranean diet to look over your shoulder so that they can uh, give some input ahead of time? <laughs> you really want the truth on that? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, the real truth is no, because I know that they don't know a tiny fraction of what I know about metabolism. I don't think there's any input that they could give me that would be worthwhile. Well, I'm thinking in terms of how um, if you have a lot of people looking at the elephant from their different perspectives, if they talk about it first to say what they're looking for and how to sketch in the picture, uh, it, it does sound like from your perspective the Harvard group overlooks some obvious things on how to make this be a better study. And whether that was intentional or not, it's hard to say. Well, I think not only did they kind of overlook some things as far as what they measured, I think the biggest detriment was the perhaps lack of knowledge in interpreting the data. You know, perhaps they don't know that high cortisol is not necessarily bad, but in fact is seen in centenarians and calorie-restricted animals and is actually... Uh, viewed by many as one of the reasons that they live longer due to its anti-inflammatory effect. So, you know, either they didn't know that or they purposely ignored that, which I think is uh, uh, something that shouldn't have been done. Well, I'll look forward to talking with them and I'll have better questions to ask thanks to talking with you. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dr. Ron Rosedale for talking with us about the new Harvard study on how a calorie is not just a calorie. I'm Shelley Schlender. You can find out more information on this topic and more interviews like this at meandmydiabetes.com. <music>